Oh, thanks so much. That's, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a little bit about me, I guess, to start. Um, I know it's always funny to be have your kind of credentials paraded around. It feels very pretentious, but I'm glad someone else did it, I suppose. If you ever do decide to get two master's degrees, I would not suggest social work and an MDiv because you at least want one that can like make you a little money or something like that. It is like, you know, except for master's in education, I probably chose the two worst ones, but um, it's a real privilege to get to do this work. Um, yeah, like you said, I've been around Redemption now for about a year and a half. Um, been in a redemption community for about six months now, um, and I've loved being part of it. It's great to be a part of a church like this where um, there's a lot of opportunities, there's a lot of growth and a lot of exciting things going on. And I think as, you know, as this stuff is starting to happen, um, as you see kind of women's events coming up in different classes and ministries and opportunities to serve, I think it's great to be part of that. And, and it, as I saw this stuff starting to happen, I certainly thought... Um, you know, there's a big tie-in, I think, with counseling and with, um, you know, these issues that I deal with a lot and the church. And, and I just kind of thought, you know, I'd like to take opportunities whenever I'm available to um, and whenever it'd be helpful to, um, to kind of share my experience and what I've seen on that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, like I said, I'm a licensed counselor. Um, I practice with, um, I've got two places that I kind of work out. One is um, called Doorways. Um, I'm there part-time, and it's a Christian counseling place just for adolescents, um, and they have great programs. If you've ever, um, it's just a good thing to know about, if, you know, to, to think about when, when people have adolescents or teenagers that are going through a hard time, there is a great place there, and they do a lot of different levels of services, and it's good stuff there. I have, I brought a brochure for them just in case you have anybody who has been thinking, man, my teenager needs a lot of help right now, um, as they do. Adolescents can be a very miserable experience, probably, as it was for some of us. Um, but, um, and then the, uh, the rest of my time, I work primarily with adults. I work with things like depression and anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance abuse, a lot of different stuff that kind of whatever comes across. Um, I have a specific training in a type of counseling called EMDR, which I won't go through here, but it's really interesting. It's, it's, it works with um, people who have experienced traumatic experiences and um, might have PTSD or something else like that. Um, it's used a lot with combat veterans, with people who've experienced um, abuse or rape or been in life-threatening situations. Um, but it can, be, it can be used for anything and has this crazy effectiveness at helping people heal from the impact of troubling memories, which we all have to a sense. I know I've loved learning about some of the stuff of that. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, like I said, I was in ministry before, and so I'm kind of, it's been interesting to, to go into one and be studying at a seminary and um, working in church and then kind of flip and go into the world of psychology and counseling, which has a lot of overlap and then a lot of things that can be polar opposite at times. So um, it's an interesting thing to merge. And I know just kind of like, you know, with Frank learning about all his work in communication and social sciences, um, it's interesting to be able to integrate what we know um, and what kind of information is out there with what we're doing. So, um, and yeah, but this is a really exciting opportunity for me. I'm, I love when, when, I was in, when I was a pastor, I loved working, doing premarital counseling, doing marriages. Um, now, as a counselor, I'm more and more working with marriages, and it's a great thing. And something like this, I have a real passion for, um, because as a marriage counselor, 
it honestly really sucks a lot, <laughs> you might imagine. And oftentimes, the reason for that is, is because most people do not seek any type of marriage counseling until a lot of the times it's far too late. I mean, I don't think it's ever too late, but in their minds, they're kind of there. And it's often this last-ditch effort, you know, before we go through with it, I guess you're supposed to do it, sometimes as a saving face before we announce that we had a divorce. Um, and that's why I love opportunities like this, um, because I don't know what prompted each of you to come here. You know, I assume it's mostly couples, you know, maybe not. But, you know, if you're a couple and you've come here tonight, um, you may have come because there's free food. You may like Frank's teaching and you're really disappointed that I'm here tonight. Um, or you may have just had this desire, I want to learn and I want to grow a little more in marriage. And whatever the case, though, is, I assume that you as a couple got in a car and drove here together, or you might have met here after work, um, but you sat down and you ate with other people, and you're here and you're kind of sitting next to each other and you want to learn something about marriage. And that, in and of itself, makes you like the healthiest couples I've worked with this week, probably. <laughs> so that's a really refreshing thing. It's great to, to work on some things where it's maybe not... Um, a total crisis yet. And I don't know what's going on. I'm sure some of you were prompted to come to this because there are problems going on. And maybe really serious problems going on. And, and coming to learn at something like this, learning things from um, what scripture has to say about marriage um, is so invaluable. And I think, um, but I would prompt to you as well is, you know, whenever you find those in times, every marriage is going to have a handful of crisis moments, a handful of difficult ones. And reach out and get whatever you need before it's too late. And that's what I'm really, um, that's what I'm passionate about and all too often don't get opportunities to work with. So I really like that. Um, yeah, and I'm really glad that these have been recorded. I uh, was traveling the last couple of weeks, so I didn't get to join and hear about what Frank was, but I, um, what Frank was teaching, but I did get to catch up online and that's great. I'm, I'm glad for that. And I got really happy about that because I was like, wow, this is going to be really easy for me because Frank's tackling all the tough stuff. Um, he's been presenting a great biblical foundation and um, it's great. So a lot of that stuff I don't have to go as much into, which is wonderful, especially on the really tricky stuff. I can leave that to the guy who has to do it and I don't have to preach the really uh, difficult passages at times. But um, but it is, and, and it's great to know, and I think Frank's doing a great job of this, is that it all works out, you know. We have, some of these verses can be tricky for some people. Some of these concepts we don't see, we have this reaction against. But um, I hope you've seen in your own marriage, and I, I hope you've seen in other people's marriage that it works, that this stuff really does work. And what Scripture is teaching about marriage, um, you know, it's great, kind of like Frank was using... Um, Examples of last week, oftentimes in sciences, I see it in counseling, you see it in social sciences, um, we keep on proving through research that the Bible um, does have authority, that it knows what it's talking about. Um, and I'm going to share some of that from a counseling standpoint tonight. Um, so yeah, it's great to do that. And, when, and the focus of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is maintaining a good marriage. Um, less about how to get out of the throes of a crisis, um, because that's a bad model to work from. If, you, if you're in that, then <laughs> come see me, come someone else. But working on how to not get to that place, how to not um, be in these uh, places in marriage that are really painful and really difficult. Um, 
And I know that kind of presupposes, talking about maintaining a healthy marriage, it presupposes that you've had a healthy marriage. For a lot of people, that might not be the case. So maybe it's kind of talking about how to make progress, how to keep a marriage growing as life changes. Um, and so what we're going to talk a lot about tonight is how to address little problems before they become big problems and get unmanageable. Um, and we've probably all seen this, I imagine. I won't ask for hands, but... I, I bet most people have had this awkward um, conversation before where you run into someone you haven't seen in a few years, and it's kind of like, oh, hey, how, you know, how's it going? And you inevitably say, how's your spouse? And you get that, you see that kind of blank look and the, oh, we got divorced, or we're getting a divorce. And, and as you're kind of like, oh, man, that was stupid, and now I'm very embarrassed, and they kind of, and you kind of get it out of them, you hear this, pretty common tale of, you know, there's been problems going on for a while, maybe even the whole time, and it just kind of grew and grew to a tipping point until uh, one or both of us couldn't handle it anymore, right? I'm sure everybody's heard of that. Um, or in another scenario, which I also really don't like, um, you might see this couple that's been committed to each other might have like decades of marriage and it's, and it's cool to see, but when you're around them, it gets really, really um, obvious that like they cannot stand each other, right? <laughs> and you know, you don't know exactly what it is, but most of their marriage has become like managing how to get away from each other, figuring out how little they can stay married with, while calling themselves married and pursuing their own happiness. Um, and I bet we've both seen both of those. And both of those just break my heart. I hate seeing it because, um, especially as a marriage counselor, I've seen how much a marriage can change when you care to, when you're ready to confront things. Um, and you look at those people and you know, like at one point they, dis they started talking about getting married. And there was a proposal and an engagement a ceremony and vows and the, and the whole deal, like you knew at, there was a time, a point in time where they would say, I can't imagine ever getting divorced. I can't imagine getting completely emotionally distant. But they find, they find themselves in that point. Um, and, it's, and it's sad. And um, I think, but what you find a lot of times in those couples, and a lot of other things can happen that lead to those things, but oftentimes, in those couples, you find that they are unwilling to confront things and unwilling to do anything to change the course of their marriage. They might lack the skills to do so, might uh, to address these issues that are affecting them. I think a lot of times it can be like this boat with a small hole in it that's taking on water. And for some reason, the people aren't willing to pump out the water. They're not willing to patch up the hole. They just kind of sit there while it sinks until it's time to either abandon ship or just sink with it. And that's a horrible thing. I hate seeing that. And, and that's why kind of, and what I'm going to talk about tonight um, and going through this uh, marriage, at this point I'll kind of share my major bias about marriage. Um, and that is about having a fulfilling marriage. And it's that, that's almost the only thing to pursue and to go towards. Um, you know, I think it's in a lot of books right now, and I think Frank, Frank's talked about it both weeks, is this idea that, um, that marriage exists to make us holy rather than to make us happy. And I wholly agree with that. That is a fundamental truth. 
um, where we start at marriage, that we need to be ready for that, that that is um, the foundation that we're starting with. And you rightly hear a lot that commitment to a marriage is so important and often so missing today. But when you look at Genesis 2, and Frank did a great job with that, um, and so I'm not going to go too far into it, but when I see a lot of this about, I, it doesn't seem to me about all commitment and about learning how to gut through, you know, a difficult marriage, even if you're not happy in it at all. You know, you get these, uh, the language is about someone who is a part of you, bone of my bone and flesh in my flesh, that we're going to leave our parents who are the sole source of, you know, everything for us up to that point, and we're going to cleave to one another. There's going to be one flesh relationship, which is mysterious. They're going to be naked and not ashamed. Um, And there's a lot of beauty. There's a lot of purpose. There's a lot of unity in those passages. Um, And I think um, that, that speaks to this idea that marriage is meant to be fulfilling. It's meant to be great. And I think even deeper than that, you know, when we look at it, and when you read the account in Genesis, I find it so, um, I find it so interesting. You know, we, if you've grown up in the church, you've gotten used to a lot of these verses and hear them all the time. You know, and sometimes I think it's helpful, um, or I like to read something and kind of pretend that I've never seen it before. You know, and maybe pretend you're someone who knows nothing about anything of our civilization, of how we are, something like that. And read Genesis, start in Genesis, start reading the Bible. And what are we being told here in this narrative, in this story? And, you know, beyond, you know, when we think of God, we, um, we've pulled in a lot of stuff. We have years and years of teaching and of thoughts and of experiences that we put into who we think God is. But I love, it's cool to read Genesis sometimes and think about, you know, as much as he's describing a bunch of events, he's also describing um, himself. It's an introduction to who I am because we didn't know who God was before, right? We read that God created the heavens and the earth. And as, and as the, you know, as Genesis 1 plays out, you see, you learn a lot of things about God, right? You learn that he can like speak things into existence, which is obviously awesome. And so you get, you get this idea that he's big and powerful. And, and you get the idea that not only speaks into existence, but he's decided all these things. And when you look at the stars, when you look at the oceans, when you look at how he made everything, you're like, this guy's pretty creative. And he's pretty smart, you know? He just, like, you, you sit on the ocean and all the beauty and all the science that's going on and what it does in you, you're like, this guy's pretty cool. Um, and as it goes through it, you know, the... Um, and all that stuff, I think you, you get really enthralled in, and I know I do. And it, the, the narrative really focuses all of a sudden around man, around God created man and his image. And we hear that a lot, and we use that term, imago Dei, a ton. Um, and it's really important. And a lot of times we stop with that. We, God created man in his image, and that's sort of like the truth that we pull out. And I think it's interesting how it goes on. It's almost a little awkward in how it says it's like God created man in his image, in his image he created them. Male and female, he created them. And it's kind of like, hey, this is important. You know, God created man in his image. Male and female is a big part of this. And, and in doing this, as he's describing this, he's not only telling us about our origins, but talking to us, he's revealing more about himself. He's kind of pausing. This one was big. I revealed myself more in this part than I've done in the rest of it. 
and, and that there's something important about that as male and female. And I think there's a mystery there that's really cool because, you know, and this unfolds over the whole of Scripture, and we don't get it um, right away, but, you know, we, we come to learn that this God is a trinity, right? He's not just one God. He is this triune God, which is, you know, you can do <laughs> like three series on and not fully be able to get a handle of. Um, and, and then after the creation, we go into this Genesis 2, and it's mostly about this, you know, unpacking what this male and female meant. And we learn it kind of happened in two stages and the, the story. And, and again, Frank did that great, so I'm not going to go too much into it. Um, but I think what's really big there is he introduces this thing about marriage and how important this was. And there's something that seems to me incredibly important about this union. And I think as it unrolls, again, if you're kind of reading this without, if you're trying to focus on it without ever, you know, everything else you know about marriage in the Bible and everything like that, you see more of God revealing himself. And I think that um, you see in this God showing, you know, I've made these two people. They're the same creature. They're both man, but they're in some ways totally opposite, but in some ways they're from each other. And the relationship that they have the differences that they have are really significant. And I've created a relationship that I desire with them that they would be one flesh and that they would have this unity. Um, they would have this unity that is really mysterious, that is one flesh. And I think in that, we're getting a little bit of a picture of what God is like. He's showing us a little more of himself that not just he's like man and in this image in some way, but that he exists in male and female and in this unity and diversity relationship that we see in marriage. And, and I think, you know, I, I don't think I'm stretching that out there. I think when you look at that, you can see these things that God is communicating himself as a triune God through the unity of marriage. And so that, to me, I think that's huge. And I think that's a big thing. And so that's why when I, um, you know, when... I kind of walk through this idea of, um, you know, a marriage is supposed to be holy over happy. I, um, I think it's right. I think, you know, I, I guess what I say is that maybe it's answering, it's the right answer to a wrong question sometimes. And that um, it's just not meant to be that way. You know, when you think of this unity and, and if it has anything to do with the Trinity, when I think of God in that sense, there's no, like, we're holy but unhappy together. There's no division of that. The whole point of it is that all these differences would work together. And not that they always will in our marriage, right? We had that whole Genesis 3 thing happen. Um, but, it, but it is there, and I think that's, I think that's a big thing that I... Um, yeah, that I kind of want to pull out. And so as I work on this, when I kind of talk and as I'm doing, my bias here is that I, like, I don't have much interest in like which one to pull out <laughs> and which one to, you know, if, if we're going to be holy or happy, which one it is, because I think they're the same thing. 
if you're doing it right, they're the same thing. And that's what we're to pursue. This, like, oh, we're not doing it right, so we got to kind of mess around and find a better way, or we're hedging our bets in a sense to make it right. I don't, I, that's not what I want to teach about. That's not what I want to pursue in my own marriage. It's not what I want to counsel people towards. It's not, you know, I don't believe in that pragmatism. I think there's something really beautiful here to be attained to and what we should do. Um, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. And, um, and a lot of times in marriage, um, in counseling especially, they'll talk about lasting marriages, and that's kind of a big deal. There's a lot of research, there's a lot of things towards a lasting marriage. And again, that's kind of like, lasting isn't necessarily it. You can be lasting and be that couple that we talked about who have no interest in each other. You know, when you're researching marriages, you call them a success, but I don't think that's a success either. Um, And and I think that's probably part of it is it's really easy to study who stays together and who doesn't. Um, And so you kind of get that. But, But talking about this fulfilled marriage, this wonderful marriage, just what we really wanted when we got married, what we've been what we've thought it should always be, but what we can't always find, um, that's what I think we need to be looking for. Um, and when I think of this principle, it's very much the same I look in my own faith. Um, I, I oftentimes, you know, when I, when I pray, when I'm reflecting on my faith um, and maybe frustrated on myself or maybe just seeking God more, I oftentimes, you know, my biggest prayer is, God, give me passion for you. I want to have passion for your word. I want you to give me a passion for living it out in my life. Um, that it's, that I, like, it's, it's not like I have to remind myself all the time that my passions have become aligned with how you are. I think that's what following Christ is about. Um, and that's always been a big thing for me. But, you know, I guess as I've gotten a little older, I realize I'm not always passionate about everything. And I had, I had a good way of kind of being passionate about a lot of stuff and then not really neglecting a lot of other stuff on the side. And I realized that's not maturity. That's not growing in Christ either. And so my prayer so often is, you know, God, where I lack passion, I would pray for obedience. And obedience is a huge part of things as well. I think that's what a mature faith is about, is that we are able to pull that apart, that we're able to be obedient to things, even if we're not passionate about them. So I pray for that. But even, but like hinged on that prayer is always this thing of like, but God, don't leave me in obedience. You know, like in the things I'm obedient now, I pray that I'll become passionate about in a couple years. And I pray that I'll become obedient to the things that I don't even know I'm doing wrong yet, you know, and that, that later that'll be a passion. And that's growth in faith, right? And in the same way, I think we look at commitment in a marriage that way. You know, in the beginning, you like it's important. You got to like really focus on commitment. Um, And that's, you know, and you got to you kind of make mistakes or do things. You got to wait. Oh, no, this is what it means to be married. And I'm committed to that. You remind yourself often. But you don't want to stay on that. You know, a faith that is rooted in just obedience and a marriage that is only rooted in commitment are never going to be fulfilling. You know, I think both of those things are kind of like the training wheels that we get. You know, you need them, and you get them there, and they, they keep you stable. But if you're growing in these things, if you're going where God would have you, you need you got to take those off, and you don't you don't think about them as much. You know, I don't think about being committed to my wife. You know, I I think about how she's like everything I could ever want, and I'm so incredibly lucky that I have her. I don't. It's like commitment seems like things like oh, you know, I got to do this, right? And you see this in your work, right? If you're if you don't like your job, you'll kind of talk about all the things you have to do and how you have a commitment to your work, you know? If you're where you feel called to be, where you love, you talk about everything you get to do. Um, 
And that's kind of think where we should be going to in our faith as well. And, you know, and that comes a lot with, I don't know how many of you have ever read um, Desiring God by John Piper. And I think, you know, when I read that, I think, whoa, you know, it's probably where my prayer for passion really came from and where, where it is. But in it, John Piper talks about how in faith, um, we kind of, we grow up a lot of times and we think that the problem is that we desire pleasure too much, right? Like, I really like um, all those cool sins <laughs> that are so pleasurable and I seek those out. And what Piper says is, no, the problem isn't that we desire pleasure too much, it's that we desire it too little. Um, I think one of the greatest examples, he quotes C.S. Lewis in it, who said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy, when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Um, and I see this a lot too. I see it in marriage. And for the most part, when I do marriage counseling, um, the, people are pretty good. The people are ready and they're willing to get into stuff. But every now and then you get these people who are like, I can't, like, I can't believe people operate that way. Um, and it happens with males and females, but, you know, oftentimes, you know, I see it a lot illustrated with males, and um, it'll be in this kind of, like, you know, you're getting to the heart of marriage, and what do you really want, and what if, you know, what's kind of your passion for marriage? And, and the guy, sometimes you'll get this guy just kind of slumped over and just, like, all I wanted is for her to clean and to not nag me and to not bug me when I go out with my buddies, and, you know, and you kind of, like, try and dig deeper, and you, dig, and you find out that there's nothing there. Like, that's really what the guy wants. And, <laughs> and you know, you just kind of scratch your head. You're like, wow, this is going to be a tough one, you know? And, and I compare that, you know, I, I told you I was traveling um, about a week ago. We were in Australia, actually. Um, yeah, I wasn't traveling for, like, business or something boring. We went on a trip to Australia, and it was just wonderful. We spent a week... Um, we went to Sydney, and then we went up to the Great Barrier Reef um, in a place called Port Douglas, this beautiful beach. And it was great for us. Like I said, we have, we have these three young kids keeping us busy, and this was kind of the first time um, since having the children that we could get away for that long. Grandparents took the three kids. We went by ourselves, and it was, oh, it was great. And we had this day where, um, I mean, the whole time was great, but I especially remember this one day where we walked along the beach. It's about two miles from the beach to the town, and you can't see anything but rainforest to the left and the beach to the right and whoever else is walking with you. And, and in that time, you know, we'd been there a few days and we'd gotten this and we just had the best talk that we'd had in a while, you know, and just talking the whole way. And we got to the town and we had dinner um, and, you know, and we're having wine and talking about all the things that and catching up and just having um, one of these times in marriage that you go, that was transcendent. Like, that's kind of what it was about. And, um, and, it, and it was great. I don't think we'd had that in a couple of years, probably, you know, because about every time you get into something good like that, you know, somebody wakes up for a nap and needs something. And, you know, you kind of get interrupted. And kids are great, but it's hard to have, you know, like you remember, like, oh, yeah, we used to do that a lot. <laughs> um, and, but, it, but it was wonderful. And I kind of look at it, it was probably one of the best times we'd had in our marriage because I think it was built up on all the other things like that. Times where you just feel right there, so close. You know, I, I hope as I'm describing this that you can say, like, yeah, I, 
I, I know those times. I know what you're talking about. I hope you've experienced that. And I hope it wasn't just like on the honeymoon or something, but that you continue to. Because I think that is what we're looking for. I think that is what in those times, you know, where you feel more open, that you can share anything with each other, that you, and all you want to do is make the other person feel loved. You're saying things, you're affirming ways and, um, that you might not usually. And, and the other person is able to hear those things and actually like let it sink in and believe it and not doubt that you really mean that. You know, that, that stuff that intimacy, you know, what we talk about, and not, and not sex, you know, but this emotional intimacy um, that just makes you feel like you are one. Um, though, I guess, obviously, those kind of go together, and when you're having that great time on the beach, you're ready to get naked and not ashamed, right? And, um, and, and it's, you know, that's how things are, are, are made, you know, though, if you're on a public beach, you keep enough shame, hopefully, to stay clothed. But, um, but you just, you know that this is what it's supposed to be. Or, you know, you could be the guy who wants his wife to clean the house while he goes out and shoots pool with his buddies. We're not, our desire for pleasure is not too strong. It's too weak. So this is where I'm coming from. This is what I'm going for. And... Um, and so kind of the question, I know I've kind of set that up, and that's where I'm going for, is that, you know, not, not how to choose one or the other, not how to have um, a lasting marriage or a happy marriage, but how do we have this one like it was meant to be, like God created it. And um, so that's kind of what we'll go into, and we'll spend the bulk of the time in that, um, or the time that we have left. And so, um, and the big thing I'm going to talk about, what I think all that is, and um, where we can go to, is um, I think it might surprise you. You know, I think the most important thing as, I've, as I read things, as I counsel people, as I go through it, is conflict. And that really catches people off guard a lot of times because you oftentimes think, you know, if you're feeling good, you say it's love, and, you know, and that kind of, we don't really know what that means specifically, but, you know, love is a good thing. And, um, and that's certainly there. And a lot of times you think it's having fun together, you know, and that's kind of the the people who play together stay together. And it might be laughter and money doesn't hurt and all these things. But the most important um, thing that I think helps you manage and helps you keep a healthy relationship is conflict. Um, This is brought out, and a lot of what I'm going to talk about is done by the research of a guy named John Gottman, um, who is uh, who he did this and he continues to do, but this has been out for a while. He has this, he has this book, if you want to see it, it's called Why Marriages Succeed or Fail. It's been around a long time now. Um, and, and in it, um, he did this research, which is pretty crazy. It's, he had 2,000 couples that he studied over 20 years. And when he first saw them, this was in like the mid-70s, he just studied how they were. He had been doing research and he did this, and he took each of these 2,000 couples and he um, predicted whether they would stay together or not. He said, okay, number one, yes, no, yeah, you know, based on what he'd collected and what he saw. And 20 years later, um, 94% of his predictions were right, based on what he was able to see on how the couple handled conflict and what it meant for their marriage. Um, And again, he's one of these guys, and even in it, is about a lasting marriage. So, 
you know, we're looking for more than that. But what he kind of goes over, I think, is so practical and so great. And I think a lot of what we get caught up in, in the epistles and these things and what we're trying to do, so many of these things happen in a right way when we know how to handle conflict well. Um, and, and again, I know it's kind of weird. I think we oftentimes gauge our relationships, um, the health of them, by the amount of conflict there. And if we're having a lot of conflict in a month or a week or a year, we're like, oh, man, this has been a rough season of marriage. And if we're having very little conflict, we're going, all right, things are going great. Um, but there's a lot more than that. You know, conflict, I think, has a lot more to do with environmental stressors and what's going on than it does with the health of our relationship. A lot of times, conflict really just comes down to change. And change causes stress. And each person in a marriage handles stress in a different way. And they're going to have a different idea of what the solution is to handle the stress. And that causes conflict. And this is just normal. Um, and so let me kind of review a year in life two couples and what this might look like. So couple A is going through a lot of changes. They're pursuing careers and have been fluctuating in work and income. They have one child and the wife is pregnant with her second. They think they need to move before baby number two comes and are looking for new places. They finally settle on a place and go through the process of moving and settling in. On top of this, they get a steady dose of family drama over the year usually in the most inconvenient times. And probably anybody that kind of had a little season like that, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, but it's difficult. And because of this, so this couple A, they seem to have conflict almost every day. Um, they, they're, they're talking about money, what the new baby needs and doesn't need, where to move, how their work should go, when they can be together, when projects will get completed, and all these issues in their own family. Yet, they've learned to handle these things fairly well. And although they get angrier and sensitive at times, they're able to find resolutions they both feel comfortable with and apologize for the ways they hurt each other in an argument. Um, and I want to compare this to couple B. So couple B uh, feels very stable. They have two children in elementary school and have kind of come to what to expect. They like their house. Um, their jobs have been the same for a few years, and they have enough money to handle their budget and save each month. Over the year, they only have about five serious conflicts, but it is always over the same issue. They tend to have a pattern of getting frustrated, lashing out at each other, and feeling hurt and untrusting of one another. Whenever this issue comes up, they argue until one person tends to withdraw or just give up for the night. After these arguments, they both feel hurt, by the other one, and they just kind of avoid the topic until it inevitably comes up again. And see so how these two couples, and one, conflict every day, you know, all these things coming up, you know, almost like that, and just feels like it doesn't end. It's always one thing on top of the other. And in their lives, they're probably really stressed. They might be feeling pretty miserable. Um, but I'll tell you, if, I've had, if I had both of these couples in my office in a day, I'm way more concerned about couple B. Um, because what they're showing is really unhealthy. What they're showing is something that um, will break at the heart of their marriage, you know? In couple A, you know, we all go through that period. Things tend to work themselves out. Kids get older and hopefully a little easier. Jobs get stable. Homes get stable. We find, like, an equilibrium. We all go through growing pains um, in a family. But 
and, and even though there's a ton of conflict, it gets dealt with and it gets done with. Um, but this couple B, you know, oftentimes it just takes one issue to lead to a divorce. And a lot of times these, it happens even more when things are going well. Because you kind of don't, you know, sometimes these stress really bond you together. Sometimes, um, you know, it, it works. You know, you, you become closer as a couple like this. You know, a couple B in this is drifting apart. And, that's, and those habits that are in something like that, we want to start from that. Um, so here's kind of just some practical things that we can do to try and do this a little better. I got um, six points here that um, kind of help handle conflict better, help lead to this fulfilling marriage. Um, the first is um, to learn to recognize how, to ha- how you handle conflict. Um, Frank talked last week um, about the ine- inevitability in any argument that it moves from the thing you were talking about um, to the argument itself. And it, like, you know, what started as, like, a simple misunderstanding or something gets blown way out, and you're having this, like, where did this come from, you know? And, um, and you know, and kind of there is this common sense that if you want to handle that issue, you just, you need to drop whatever's going on, get over it, and get back to the original thing. Um, but I would tell you that, that is, if you're able to, that's exactly what you shouldn't do. When you get in that ridiculous conflict, when you get in that ridiculous argument over nothing, those are oftentimes the most important arguments. In fact, I would argue that those arguments about how you argue are the most important arguments you can have. That's kind of a mouthful, but you probably get the idea. Um, because, it, you know, and sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you need to be pragmatic and you need to move on with things. But when you drop it and you're able to come to like, okay, we'll have chicken and not the fish, you know, it's, you, you got through, uh, you know, a pretty small issue that didn't matter, but it doesn't really mean something for you. But the way that you argue, the what happens when that comes up, you're going to have that your whole marriage. And that type of thing is what can really help you just cruise through problems that are difficult or can get you stuck on everything and can grow you bitter towards one another. So I would, I would encourage you when you're in those things to, to let it play out. I mean, to calm down when you need to, but to let it play out and to start learning from each other, like, how did this happen? And to kind of replay tape of this, of what happened, and kind of go, well, when you said this, I really felt this way, you know? And, and you know, in communication, and, and Frank's brought this up a lot of times, there's a big difference between what is said by the person who's talking and what is received or perceived by the person who's hearing. And starting to understand those things is the first thing um, about kind of learning how to do this better. The second is to become a student of your spouse. Um, So as you're learning how you handle conflict and how your spouse handles conflict, really becoming a student of that and starting to kind of pick up on like, you know what, every time I do this, that really gets under her skin. Or, you know, when I do that, he always gets angry. Like, he's not always angry, but every time I do that, he's always angry, you know, and picking up on these things. And believe me, you do. You, you all do that. But our tendency is to um, pick up on those things, and we, we, rather than learning how to become more sensitive to each other, we kind of keep them as that little ace in the pocket, right? When they're really bugging me, I'm going to pull that one out, and I know that I can get anger from there. And then they're going to be wrong, and then I'm going to be able to come around and win the fight, right? 
or I know when I say that she's going to become a mess and it's going to be like, oh my gosh, so, so emotional. And why can't we just talk logically about this stuff? And we have these things ready, but for the wrong thing. And that's actually um, the, and as we're doing that as well, while you're picking up on these things about your spouse, we want to be doing that for ourselves as well and start to get like, why am I so sensitive towards that? Why does this bother me? Why does he push my buttons like that? You know, oftentimes in seeing counseling, and it, and it ends to, a lot of times it's baggage that we brought in, emotional things that we have, and dealing with those can be a real help for us. Um, but learning to do it, and, and that kind of brings to the, the third point in marriage and doing this. Uh, you know, as we're um, learning about how we're doing this, as we're being, becoming a student of our spouse, is just learning to fight fair. And that's kind of where, um, when you've begun to learn how to handle these things a little better, becoming sensitive to it. And instead of keeping it in the pocket to do it, instead of saying, I know how to win arguments, you know, I can, I can pull this out whenever I need, is start to go, I'm never going to do that again. I'm not going to go to these places to where I know I'm hurting my spouse. Um, no matter what is happening in the argument, um, and that's a big thing about fighting fair. And I think um, in that, um, part of the thing is to is in fighting fair is learning to change the culture of our conflicts. And oftentimes, when we're going, when we're crossing a line from a healthy conflict to one that is going to be really bad for us, what happens is. Um, inevitably, you know, our pride and our sin is creeping in, and, and we go to our primary objective is to win this argument. And I love that, you know, and, and um, nobody thinks about that, but that is like, I think this idea of winning an argument in a marriage is just crazy. It is a complete oxymoron, because when you think about what the larger goal is in your marriage of having a fulfilling marriage, of having an ease, um, of having these things that we want, of learning how to have good conflict. If you come out of any conflict where one person seems and feels confident that they got the better end of the deal, then you did not win. There was no success there. You didn't do it right if somebody wins an argument. And, and that's where we need to kind of become. And, you know, when we're, when we're having conflicts, it's inevitable that sometimes our pride's going to creep in. And I think what is helpful is if what, when we are feeling that way, if we're going to have a pride, when we have these like, inevitable desires towards this stuff, is start to create a culture where the pride that one can have is in being the better spouse and in being the more Christ-like person. That, that I'm going to make the hard thing. I'm going to apologize. Even, even if I think you were like 90% wrong about this and I'm 10% wrong, well, you know what? I'm going to go apologize for my 10%. And then if I'm going to be prideful, I can be prideful about how I'm being more Christ-like than you, which is still, you know, not the attitude to have. But we've got to get rid of this winning thing because it's not there. It's not what we think it is. Um, and... You know, and I think the big thing, you know, one of the just huge verses for me in marriage, even though it's not directed necessarily towards marriage, but Proverbs 15.1, this would come up in my head all the time. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And it's, it's helpful for you. You know, usually when we have arguments, we're like replaying tape all the time, right? And 
what did he do? What did she do? Where did I, you know, where did I start losing? Don't think about that. Where did I, where was I Christ-like or not? But kind of look, you know, look at each thing that you said, that your spouse said, and um, judge that statement in with that, with that verse. Was that gentle and turning away wrath, or was it harsh and stirring up anger? Was this escalating the negativity of this argument, or was it bringing us back to where we need to be? And, and bringing this into the culture of our marriage. Um, and the other thing, the fourth thing, maybe the, most, um, maybe the most practical thing, and it sounds cheesy sometimes, but we need to learn when to take a break. And this is one of the things in Gottman's um, research that's super fascinating. And he has this place, um, it's in Washington, um, where he does his research, and it's called the Love Lab. It's not nearly as cool as it sounds. It sounds like some, you know, <laughs> frat boy's van or something like that. But um, this is a place where couples come up to do research and counseling together, and they, and, and they do a bunch of stuff through there, but one of the coolest ones is they, will, they hook them up to, like, heart monitors and these electrodes on their head, and they're, and they're, like, running all these sort of physiological tests. And then they say you know, let's bring up a contentious thing for you. And at first people are just like, I'm not going to fight here because I got all these wires on my head and I don't want you to do it. But inevitably, and I've seen videos of this, it's crazy. they just get right into it. And they've got people in this lab and they're videotaping everything. They're looking at nonverbal cues. They're looking at how, part, how fast their heart rate is going, what's going on with their brain waves and all this stuff. And they go back and they replay this tape a bunch of times and they look at what's happening. And they've been able to... Um, just in the stress level and what's going on in the brain and, and what's going on, how, how fast you're running, how fast your motor's running at the time, how fast your heart's beating. Um, they're able to find this point in all these things, and they kind of just stop looking for a while. They go, okay, he's, he's here. He's physiologically unable to have any productive conversation at this point. Where you are so stressed that you, you're just, all you're going to do is lash out. All you're going to do is make mistakes and you're going to say that stupid thing that you're going to be apologizing for for like six months and you're really going to hurt your spouse. And so the biggest thing is knowing that this happens. Like, um, you know, a lot of times we just want to keep, like, sometimes in a good way, we got to keep going until we get to a resolution. And I agree with that in a part, but there's just a lot of wisdom to taking a break. And, I, and this is like one of the things I do with most couples. I get a lot of people who get... Um, either get to the point of being physical, which is horrible, or to the point um, of just, like, breaking each other down in an argument. And I always recommend for these people who are really struggling with this, like, you need to make something. You need to make, like, a code word or a hand signal, and that is just, like, time out. And we're going to agree that whenever somebody, right, whenever somebody does it, whenever somebody pulls this card, like, we're done, and we're going to stop for a moment because one or both of us just can't make this work right now. And, um, and that's just a really helpful thing. Now, you'll always have one person in the couple who loves that and is ready to abuse that because all they want to do is avoid stuff. And so they're just going to time out about every time they don't like it and leave. And, and that's, that's why it's not just, not just total time out. We're not just leaving. But the only, the only communication you have at this point, you drop the points you let it go for a minute, but all, all you do is you schedule a time when you're going to come back. Either, you know what, I need like a half hour, I'm going to take a walk around the block, and let's kind of try this again. 
you know, if you have to do it the next day um, that you do it, you kind of look and just, just say, all right, I know that, th like, this isn't working. We've got to be done. But before you, before you leave on that timeout, that you figure out when we're going to work on this again. Because if you just leave it, that's that thing that gets bad. That's what brings this bitterness towards people. That's what um, lets those things really go, and we don't want that. We want to be able to resolve conflicts. We want to learn how to do it. But we can't do it when we're when we're so worked up. Um, and and I think around with that, you know, and I, and I think that does, it brings up, um, you know, another verse that was really big for me in doing this in the beginning of our marriage. And I think, you know, the first few years of our marriage, this was like all of it, just arguing about arguing, you know, and I'm taking this stuff in class and I'm like, all right, we got to do this. And, you know, and I can remember just, we would, like, my wife and I would be up half the night trying to figure this out. And it started with nothing, you know, but it brought up these things that were truly important and we needed to figure out. Um, and, and I would, and I would always be really big on Ephesians 4.26, right? It says, be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Um, I thought about that a ton. And to me, and I took that to be like, we should never go to sleep mad at each other. Um, and so we would say, I'd be like, I'm not going to sleep until we're done. And she, that would drive her crazy sometimes. She was ready to be done. And, and that was really great for us. I, you know, I started to realize, I'm like, I might be over um, taking this a little too literally. In fact, we started this argument after the sun had already gone down. So maybe we have till the next one. I don't know. You know, I think the bigger principle is, the bigger principle is we've got to resolve this before it gets stuck, before we get that bitterness of rather than having an argument that I've got a spouse that is this way. And that's kind of what we're going to go into next. Um, after learning when to take a break, um, and I'll kind of go through these really quick. This is one of the big things in the book. You can probably um, just get this online if you want. But um, John Gottman has his four things that are totally destructive for any relationship. Um, yeah, and for time, I probably won't go totally into them. Um, but here they are. He calls them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which I think is a really cheesy name for it, and I usually don't use that. But, um, but if you want to look it up, if you look up John Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, you would find it um, pretty quickly if you don't want to buy the book. Um, but those things, the four things that he says are really bad, one is criticism. And criticism involves attacking someone's personality or their character rather than a specific behavior. Frank talked a lot about this, this type of thing last week with attribution theory. And we know that we're doing this. We're doing this all the time. When things are happening, we're attributing things either to a behavior or to um, a characteristic or a internal personality thing. Um, but when we're talking with each other, when we're trying to resolve things, do not bring up negative things about somebody's character. Because all it does is hurt people, and there's nothing to do about it, you know? If, if Deirdre were to tell me, Ben, you're really selfish, um, I would be like, well, that hurts. I don't, I don't want to be that way. But also, that there's no practical way for me to know what that is. You know, rather, what we want to say is, when you said or did this, it made me feel this or this. And those things, we can, that can lead to a great, great conversation. And you can start going through, like, 
well, I didn't mean it that way. Well, you could say, well, but I took it that way. And why did you say, and, and that's where you're going through this thing of having a good um, conflict about how you handle conflict and learning how to not be so um, bad at it, you know, and, and bad at figuring these things out. So that's the first one is criticism. The second one is contempt. And it's a lot like um, criticism, but with a lot more intention, where you're intending to hurt or psychologically abuse somebody with this negative character thing. Um, and the third one is defensiveness. And this happens a lot. It's really, um, it's really uh, natural to us when we are feeling attacked, we react in a lot of defensive ways, like making complaints, like instead of acknowledging what you said to me, I'm gonna bring up a different complaint about you, about kind of all these mechanisms that we do. And they do nothing to help solve arguments and they make us feel worse. Um, the fourth one is called stonewalling, and that's when, um, and, and it's mostly men, as this, Gottman said that about 85% of this behavior is in men, and it's kind of where I'm going to be physically present, but um, emotionally completely disengaged. And so it can look like a lot, you know, look like um, the example with a male doing it is, you know, wife going over this stuff that's really bothersome, and then kind of being like, are you done? All right, I'm going to go eat now. You ever done one of those? Not good. And <laughs> we have a lot. You know, when you read this stuff, it's going to be really hard because you're like, oh, man, I do that all the time. And it's great watching the videos that Gottman does from the Love Lab because they got the people and they're like, you see that? That was criticism. You see how she reacted? That was defensiveness. And where are we going and all this stuff. And, and um, that's a lot what I do. You know, I use his um, type of counseling. He has kind of a whole... Um, crazy certification program that costs a lot of money I haven't done yet. But um, but a lot of what you do in counseling and when I work with people is only, pr trying to pretend we have one of these tapes. And, you know, it's usually, oh, we did this, this, and, and it's kind of like, no, 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 tell me what you said. Then tell me what you said. Then tell me what you said. And let's pick apart and see what happened. Where are we doing these things that aren't productive, that are bad for us? Um, and... Um, yeah, and on that stonewalling, you know, it's just, it's a horrible thing that we guys can do. And um, it kind of goes right in the face of what we're supposed to do. You, know, you see in First Peter um, 3, 7 about um, showing your wife honor. And, and that is, you know, just explain, you know, I think we see that in treating your wife as so special, caring for and doing that. And it requires an engagement. If, if you're starting to stonewall, then you've gotten to the point of where, hey, I'm here, but I don't value you at all. That's what those types of things can communicate to your spouse, and, we don't, and you don't want to do that, obviously. Um, so, um, you know, that's most of what we got. I know we're about out of time anyway. I was hoping we'd have a little time for questions, um, and we might not, but, um, you know, and I think what I would hope in, in doing this is that we're, lear you know, to learn for practical things. And I know that Frank's been doing great stuff with that. I, that's kind of what I wanted to focus on is finding some of these things of what can I do in my marriage? How can I have a, a better focus for it? And how can I change some specific behaviors or do something to help it? Um, yeah, and, and I think around that as well, a big thing is creating good habits in our marriage. You know, just like when we take a time out, finding a way to schedule it back in and, and learning that this is important. And I think it's helpful a lot of times when things are good, 
we have this way of like trying to pretend that fights never happened. And, and I don't know if you do, I don't, know, I don't know if you like that or what, but it is, a, it is great when you're feeling really good, maybe when you're on a great date or something like that, bring up one of those things that have bothered you. And, and especially if it's something you did, of just like, you know, I know I've been treating you that way and I'm sorry about that. And I'm willing to listen. I'd like to know how I've been affecting you when I do that. You know, oftentimes we only talk about bad things and bad times and we're not really ready to talk and listen about it. That's what we're gonna learn to do better. Um, and as well, um, yeah, like Frank said, um, one of the things I love to do is a retreat. And um, I love to, uh, uh, my wife and I have been taking a personal marriage retreat every year. And um, it's been something for us that we kind of go and we ask ourselves all these hard questions. And we go over our lives in so many ways. And so, yeah, we're doing one of those, um, you know, we're doing it for, uh, with a group this time. And it's in Coronado. It'll be three days. And we're going to kind of go over. We're going to talk about money and sex and communication and all these kind of things and and really encourage we'll be doing things together but the big part will be to go spend time on the beach go have dinner talk about these things write about them and learn about your marriage so um all right well that's everything i have let me pray for us i think um we'll probably have time if um why don't you go ahead and distribute oh yeah yeah sorry have them up here and get that i can all right cool something with me that I want to mention okay. and then I'll let you go ahead and leave us in prayer All right, great. Um, the six things that he went through at the end there including Gottman's four horsemen um, the second one become a student of your spouse uh, earlier tonight um, I was talking to some people at this table here about how all of this marriage stuff and you know this Ben all of this marriage stuff um, we could take one topic Yeah, absolutely. Everything you can just go so deeply. His second point, the first one was become aware of how you argue. Secondly, become a student of your spouse. I just want to mention, it's kind of funny you said that because one of the nights, I can't remember if it's session five or six, we're going to probably spend 45 or 50 minutes specifically talking about why that's important. That rather than uh, projecting our desires and our wants on our spouse, one of the jobs that we have in, in marriage is to learn what our spouse wants from us. So it's just a great, I can't believe all the different touch points that we have uh, in this, and that's a great example I wanted to show you. That's a great example of something where I'm going, we're gonna spend 45 minutes on that at one time. So uh, it's just a good uh, demonstration of how all of this fits together. Uh, you got all the uh, cards out? I think so. Um, Ben's going to hang around for a couple minutes. Do you have any uh, specific questions for him? Uh, otherwise, Ben's going to pray, and then we're dismissed. All right, great. Thanks. And, Father, we do just thank you for this time. Um, uh, marriage is an amazing thing that you've gifted with us, or you've gifted us with. And um, oftentimes, it's also one of the hardest things that we can go through, and it can be incredibly frustrating, incredibly um, a, a place of insecurity and of... Um, you know, horrible experiences if, if we're not doing it right. And, and God, we just pray and we invite you, everyone in here, I just pray you um, would come closer to these people, that you would be more in their relationships um, than they have been, that you would keep them strong, that you would help them how to live out um, what the Bible teaches, that you would learn them, or that you would teach them 
um, to handle conflict in a great way. We love you, Father. We thank you for all the ways you bless us. In Christ's name, amen. Can we thank Ben for